You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Marianne Cronin on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The 100 Years of Lenny and Margot. And I... I, I I can't even I can't even think of adjectives to uh, describe this book. But uh, if if you only read one book this year, make sure this uh, is sitting by your by your bedside or your you know favorite reading chair. This is one of those books that will stay with you and linger long after you close that back cover. Uh, welcome to the show, Marianne. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, Marianne, we begin each show with the same question, and that Mm -hmm. question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That's such a great question. I um, listened to the Vary McFarlane episode yesterday, so I'm prepped. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) my first memory is I was in year one, which is when you're about five or six years old, and our teacher at school had asked us to um, write a story. And I was writing this story about a rabbit, and I'm sure it was a huge ripoff of Beatrix Potter's Tales of Peter Rabbit. And it was all about this little rabbit who lived in a warren, and he went to the city, and he didn't like it. And the teacher had to stop me from writing to tell me that it was time for break like to go outside and play and I just remember thinking I don't want to stop I want to keep going and I think from then on I have been just scribbling and writing ideas and stories down um at an insane pace I love that so much um so you were I think it's safe to say you're a fairly bookish kid were were you one of those kids that walked around with their nose in a book Oh, absolutely. And I loved um, I loved reading, but I also loved TV, which I think is something that authors don't talk about as much. But I always <laughs> found that such a great sort of like diving into your imagination and, you know, a really rich place for inspiration. So, yeah, I was always reading a book or watching TV um, or writing. I had a whole host of notebooks that my mum's kept that I've looked through recently and they're just full of in- insane scribbles. But it meant a lot to me at the time, I'm sure. That uh, that experience that you had where the teacher had to interrupt you to to go outside um, were do you remember any other experiences you had where an adult uh, maybe recognized this storytelling gene um, that you had and encouraged that? Yeah, absolutely. A few years later, when I was about eight, nine years old, um, my family had gone on holiday um, to a little house in France. And it was this really old house full of dark wood. And there was a locked door in this house that we weren't allowed to go into. And so when we returned for school in September, we were asked to write a story. And I wrote this story about this ghost that lived behind the door. And it was six or seven pages of my exercise book. And I think other kids were maybe writing one or two sides and kind of like looking forward to the end of the task. And I just couldn't stop. 
stopped and the teacher she read it she gave me some house points which sounds very harry potter um <laughs> but she gave me some house points and she sat down and she read it to the class and i was really embarrassed but i was i was so thrilled and i just remember being like like blushing but being so excited that she'd seen something in my writing and i i sort of still credit her with giving me that confidence to be like people are going to sit and listen to these things that you're writing one day which i think is really lovely Absolutely. Um, the 100 Years of Linnea Marco is a is a book that that just completely transports you as a reader and and you get uh, so involved in these characters lives that um, that you kind of can forget that that the world that the rest of us live in exists for a little while. Do you remember the first book or maybe it was a series of books or an author um, that that you experienced as a youngster that uh that communicated to you that that books could transport you to another place that you could get involved in these people that don't exist in, in their lives and and that that stories could become bigger than real yeah that's such a great question um yeah so I was a huge fan of Jacqueline Wilson and um you know she's a huge writer over here I'm not sure if she's as popular in the US as she is in the UK but um she has written so so many books and one of her books is called The Lottie Project and it's about a young girl who is doing a school project on the Victorians and she falls into this kind of dream world where she's a Victorian and she writes these kind of diaries and as a kid I was really into history and I just remember being so absorbed into this book and completely obsessed with it and I just remember that feeling of like I was sitting here looking at this page but in my mind I was somewhere completely different and I'm pretty sure my mum had to like tear that from my hand to get me to go to sleep. <laughs> I love that. Um, Marianne you have a PhD in applied linguistics. What is applied linguistics? It's so much more boring than fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's basically, um, so theoretical linguistics would be making up theories about language. So for example, really old gender theories might be that women use words like fantastic or great more than men. Whereas applied linguistics is taking those theories and applying them to sets of data and sort of, you know, recording people, analysing data and seeing whether those theories hold up in the actual real world. Um, so my PhD, which I was doing at the same time as writing the book, uh, it was a lot more fun than that and uh, my PhD looked at why we find impoliteness funny so specifically I was looking at impoliteness in sitcoms um, so why do we find it funny when Ross screams at Rachel we were on a break you know why do we giggle when people scream at each other and say offensive things in a sitcom um, so that was what I was um, researching for my PhD. So what was it about uh, linguistics that that captured your imagination you know like what is it about language that uh, uh that you love so much oh i think it's just just so fascinating and um i did my undergraduate degree and i cried on the last day of my lectures because i didn't want it to end <laughs> and all my friends were like yes it's over we did it and i was just heartbroken and that was my first kind of inkling that maybe i should keep going with academia for a little bit longer um so i started doing my master's degree and absolutely fell in love with applied linguistics and then my phd i just happened to meet this incredible supervisor and she really pushed me she said you can do this for a phd you know you have to start applying um, for research funding and all those kinds of things and so it just drew me in I'm just fascinated with the way people communicate and how language makes us respond which I think obviously makes a lot of sense being a writer now. Sure um, I'm 
I think of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who was a philologist and uh, who created languages. And, you know, he kind of famously created the the languages of Middle Earth and then, you know, the stories that came out of that. What's the difference in a philologist and um, and a linguist? Ooh, that's a very technical question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think for linguistics, it's more about the analysis side of things. Um, and it linguistics sort of branches off into lots of subsections. So you have um, metaphor analysis, which is something that I was really into, political linguistics, gender and language, child acquisition. Um, so it really does split and get very kind of specific into the subfield that you're interested in. Um, but primarily it's about understanding language and use. So we have all these ideas about how we use language, but how do we really use language? Like what happens if we record people and they forget they're being recorded? What happens to their language? You know, how do children communicate? How do they learn? slang all those kinds of things um that just i could bore you with <laughs> for hours <laughs> well you know on the surface uh it it the um they may not feel connected the um the study and writing fiction uh mm -hmm. yet um you know to hear you talk about language and linguistics um it it almost feels like it's a an extension of uh a fiction writing or maybe Fiction writing is an extension of of the um, the the studies of ling linguistics. It's all about how we communicate. What at what point did these two things sort of tie together in your mind? At at, at what point did you realize, um, you know, this this is like um, th this is storytelling in a sense. This is the study of storytelling in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's so many things that sort of spring to mind with that question. I think one of them was um, I started studying stylistics, which is um, a branch of linguistics, and it looks at how language in fiction creates um, effects in the reader. And um, in this textbook, um, the researcher had said that characters or speakers who are more powerful tend to do a few things all the time. So they will interrupt others, they will speak for the longest time, and they will control the topic of conversation. And so when you apply that to language in literature, when you have an overbearing character, when you analyse their language, usually that's what they're doing. And so for me, that felt like that just switched a light on. And my writing of dialogue has forever been shaped by that. Um, so when I was writing Lenny and Margot, Lenny um, is seriously ill, she has a terminal illness, but she doesn't like to talk about it. And so I had so much fun with her interacting with the priest, uh, the hospital chaplain, Father Arthur, because she doesn't ever really want to answer the question. And so all the ways that she kind of sneaks about topics all came originally from that study of stylistics. Wow. Um, it you know, as writers, we hear the um, the the piece of advice that, that's bandied about all the time, um, you know, show, don't tell. And uh, th that, that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? It's uh, how we communicate um, in 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 without how the words create pictures, if you want to say it that way. Yeah, absolutely. And all the little tricks that writers have that create these outcomes. And, you know, when you're first starting out as a creative writer, you think, how did they do this? And sometimes things like show, don't tell can be really useful. But other times you want to get very specific. That might just be me, <laughs> like, yeah. my analyst's brain. But things <laughs> like knowing that you're you're controlling the topic means that you're a powerful speaker really helped me to kind of access certain ways of having characters speak and interrupt each other and so on. And I think it is, as you say, rather than saying this character doesn't want to talk about things, showing it through that dialogue and having that character evade the subject as often as she can. Sure. 
What Death Taught Terran by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found this story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. So you said that you started writing uh, the 100 Years of Millennium Margo while you were doing your PhD thesis. That Those are like, are you a glutton for punishment? or? or... <laughs> Yeah, I think when I look back now, um, the book took seven years from the first draft to the final draft. And I can completely see why, because there would be some days I'd be in my office doing my PhD, you know, on Word, writing, writing, writing. And then I'd come home, have dinner, sit down, open Word and be like, right, Lenny and Marco. And my brain would just be like, nope, 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 nope. And like, we need to put some Netflix on. We need to just kind of decompress a little bit. So for me, it really was the reason it took me so long was because of that trying to balance those kind of two you know the analytical and the creative sort of demands but I did find that Lenny and Margot was actually something I would look forward to at the end of the day because it was so much more fun than my PhD um 
yeah, I really enjoyed sort of having that in the evenings or at the weekends as like a little <laughs> treat, I suppose. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm fascinated with the beginnings of things where mm-hmm. stories are created. Um, and, you know, that it's sort of, you know, a trite question to, to ask a writer, where do your ideas come from? Um, but kind of deeper than that, um, you know, at stories are are just plain magic sometimes that one moment Lenny and Margot don't exist in any form whatsoever and then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind or you're uh, sort of daydreaming and you start playing the the what if game in your mind where you know what if this you know plot device sort of worked its way out uh, to its natural conclusion what would happen there and then characters populate that plot and then all of, all of a sudden uh, the 100 years of Linnea Margot exist in some form in your mind. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then it's the process of you excavating that story, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but how did how did these characters come to you? How did this story of these these two people um, you know, come to inhabit your mind? Yeah, I think there were quite a few things that happened simultaneously. And when I look back now, I'm like, oh, that's where that came from. Um, so sort of as I started talking about the book more with people, I've realised, oh, that's that was where that came from. Um, so when I started writing, I was 22 and I'd gone to the doctors just for a normal appointment. I thought I had a throat infection and I said to her, oh, my chest feels like a little bit fluttery. And so she did a heart test and she said that my pulse was 190 beats per minute. And wow. she said, she said to me, the options are you drive yourself to A&E or to hospital or I call an ambulance. I have to do one of these two things. And I was like, oh, I'm really hungry. I've just come from work. Can I have dinner first? <laughs> She was like, I don't think you're appreciating how serious this is. No, you can't have dinner. So I drove myself off to hospital and they, you know, again, at that point, I think my heart was about 230 beats per minute, which is ridiculously high. But I was quite calm and they were saying, oh, are you scared of hospitals and doctors? And I was like, no, no, I'm I'm fine. Um, And so that just led to lots of sort of outpatient appointments over the next few months and weeks, trying to figure out what was going on with my heart. And so because I was only 22, I suddenly felt very mortal. And I was really aware of like, oh, my goodness, like so the thing that's keeping me alive is in trouble. What's going to happen? And as I was waiting in the hospital, I started to think, what would it be like to know that you were going to die? And then a few weeks later, I was writing um, a master's essay on metaphor theory. And I got to thinking about the link between you know, terminal as in terminal illness and terminal as in the airport. And I just started writing. And the first line of the book is the first thing I ever wrote. And the first page is the first thing I ever wrote. Like it's barely changed from that moment. And it sounds really spooky to say, but it really felt like Lenny just popped into my head. It felt like she visited me and she had to tell me this story, which I feel like for people who are learning creative writing is such an unhelpful answer you know in terms of like learning the craft (laughs) but it just felt like she was there and I knew exactly how she would respond to people being kind to her and I knew how she'd respond to indifference and so I started writing these chapters with um, the hospital chaplain Father Arthur and that was my way of kind of feeling Lenny out you know where are her limits what does she do how does she push people's buttons and so within the first few days I had Lenny and then the next task was Margot who was quite a lot harder to create so so where did this idea of um, two characters uh, on on different ends of the age spectrum and and together 
they have lived a hundred years. Where, where did, how did you come up with that scenario to put these two characters in? It was one of those things where um, I'd been chatting with a friend about combined ages and we were like, oh, between us, we're, you know, 50 years old or what have you. And so that, I think, had been in my mind. And then when I got Lenny's voice, I knew that she was young. And for a long time, I'd wanted to write something set in hospital art class after I'd seen um, a documentary about hospital art class. And it just kind of I, I think I must have just had this all sort of percolating in the back of my mind. And the idea of adding Lenny's age to someone else's age just seemed to kind of fit perfectly for these two characters that I wanted to create. And then I immediately started Googling because I thought someone must have done this before me. There has to already be a book where two people are 100 years old. And so I did as many Google searches as I could. And I I couldn't find anything. There probably is a book out there. So apologies if there is. Um, And it felt like it sounds quite cynical to say, but it felt like as soon as I had that idea of the two of them being 100, I thought, there's my elevator pitch. You know, like I'd read books that said, you know, when you're when you're pitching a book or when you're trying to get an agent, you need that elevator pitch. And it felt like I'd suddenly stumbled across one and I was like, there's the pitch. I have to, this is a thing. I have to start writing this now. Is, is the Glasgow Princess Royal Hospital a real place? It's not. Uh, there is a Glasgow Princess um, Hospital that's a maternity only hospital, but um, as itself, it is a fictional hospital that I've created, um, mostly because I didn't want to get into any trouble <laughs> for having, <laughs> you know, some slightly quirky characters inhabiting that hospital. I wouldn't want to claim that that exists in the real world. The, it, this book is, is such a great vehicle for quirky characters. Um, the um, How did you start thinking about the supporting cast? I think that's one of the things that really took the longest. You know, at first I had I had Lenny's voice and then I very, very slowly brought Margot into the picture. And I think um, for me, I just love I love weirdos. I love quirky people <laughs> like, you know, if you see someone on the bus who's just having a chat with every person that gets on or, you know, I used to work in a library and there was a customer who used to take his trousers off when it was raining. Like he'd come in from the rain, take his trousers off, put them on the heater to dry. And then he'd wear denim hot pants around the library as he worked. And just those kinds of people just fill my life with joy and just give you that kind of like just a little spice of life, I think. Um, so the supporting cast for Lenny and Margot really came out of the needs of Lenny and Margot. So Lenny needed someone who she could be vulnerable with and she could talk about God and life and death. And so Father Arthur came out of that need. You know, he's the hospital chaplain and he's the place that Lenny goes to when she's really doubting herself. And then also New Nurse, who we le- we never learn her real name, um, but she's Lenny's palliative care nurse. And, you know, she's quite new to the job and she wants to do the best she can but she's quite afraid and she's really scared of losing Lenny and so she came out of Lenny's need to have someone roughly her own age who could be her kind of confidant and then in Margot's life I just had the most fun you know because we go back in time and we learn about Margot's early life and her years in London in the 60s I had so much fun creating you know love interests for Margot that offered her completely different things you know so she she has Humphrey who she meets later on in life and he's a stargazer and he's quirky and unusual but he offers her all this stability whereas in her younger years in London she falls in love with Mina and Mina is carefree but she's really unreliable and she's quite selfish and so but she brings Margot all this kind of excitement and all this kind of sort of drive to just be whoever she wants to be and so I think for me the supporting cast came out of what do Lenny and Margot need and how can I bring people to give them what they need. The um the book takes place mostly in uh, in the 
terminal ward of uh, of this hospital, and we we realized that that Lenny um, she's seventeen, and and she is uh, she's not going to live much past that. Um, this this story could have a very um, dark and somber tone to it yet it has the the exact opposite um how did you kind of wrestle with these emotional extremes of you know this is a a dire um sort of uh um i'm i'm, I'm at a lack for words here it, <laughs> you know the, the the outlook is 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 very somber and dire yes. yet mm-hmm. yet uh her response is not um, at, you know, w- when you're thinking about this character, how did you start realizing kind of how she would rise to to the uh, the challenges that she was facing? I'm so glad that you said that, because one of my big fears with the book was that it would be this big, dark, sad, you know, depressing tale. Sure. And, it's been, it's been, and, and not you know, that there aren't serious moments in the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to to convey that. But <laughs> but but yeah. Yeah, I think it's been such a joy to sort of to hear from reviewers and readers that they've been laughing at moments and that they found it an uplifting and ultimately kind of, you know, a life affirming book. Because when you're writing, obviously, it's just you writing. And, you, and I was sort of thinking, is this is this all getting a little bit too gothic and dark and, and nobody's going to want to read this? Um, so for me, I think one of the things that I find really interesting in sort of um, British culture is the idea of gallows humour and the idea that as soon as things get serious, a lot of British people, we immediately try and make a joke out of things, you know, this kind of absolute refusal to take ourselves too seriously. Um, and I think one of the things that really helped me was I watched this documentary that was on um, Channel 4 in the UK, and it was called My Last Summer. And for the programme, they got several people who were terminally ill all together to spend a summer together in this house. And what amazed me was how much laughter there was and how like how many jokes they had and how incredibly alive these people were, even though they were facing this horrible thing. And so much of Lenny's positivity was inspired by those people in that documentary. Um, and I think because she's 17, Lenny's just just absolutely full of life you know she hasn't given up and she's cheeky and she's irreverent and she tries to push <laughs> she tries to push people's buttons and she tries to get away with things and sometimes she uses her illness to try and get away with things and I think those are all the kinds of things that I would be doing if I was in her position at 17 just trying to get the most out of life that I possibly could um and for me for the humor there were not there were no parts where I was writing where I thought specifically like oh this will make them laugh or this is the funny part it was mostly me trying to make myself laugh while I was writing (laughs) and so it's been I always think I have a really weird sense of humor so it's been really nice hearing that people have found bits funny (laughs) as well were there ever times in in the writing that the the relationship uh that Lenny and Marco developed that did, did that relationship ever surprise you? Did, did you learn things uh, about human nature and maybe about yourself in discovering these characters? Yeah, I think the main thing that surprised me was how easy it was for them to trust each other. And I remember sort of going back during the editing stage and thinking, will the reader be frustrated that they've they've formed this immediate bond? You know, do they do they have enough time to trust each other? But it really felt like these two characters just kind of saw each other and kind of clicked. And I like to think of them as non-romantic soulmates. You know, they were always meant to meet each other. They're kind of each other's other half, if you will. And so for me, like, it was just the idea that I could just relax a little bit and just let these characters kind of 
just be who they are and they're already matched to sort of have this incredible relationship and I think with Margot you know I mentioned that Lenny popped into my head and just kind of was this really clear voice but for Margot it was a much longer much slower process and in the first draft Margot was nothing like she is in the book now she cried all the time and she was a bit of a downer and she was just this really kind of she lost herself a lot to Lenny Lenny's voice completely overpowered her and I realized that I was kind of in terms of like um, filling in Margot's backstory, I was really coming up against my own ageism, you know, my own limited ideas of what this, in inverted commas, sweet old lady might have done in her life and who she could be and and what things she could have done. And when I stopped thinking of Margot as like a sweet old lady and thought of her more as a 20 year old, you know, in London, I was able to sort of write someone so much more interesting. And as soon as I let go of all those ideas of like, well, I can't have a sweet old lady who is bisexual. I can't have a sweet old lady who's done these crimes, you know, it, as soon as I let go of that, I had so much more fun and Margot just suddenly felt so much more real to me. I love that so much. Um, the the um, the paintings, uh, what a great uh, story device that you came up with to explore, um, you know, especially Margot's history, but but Lenny's as well. And um, where did the idea for, you know, having these two characters to to do a painting from from each year um because what a what a great there are lots of different ways that we've seen um you know uh, characters backstories told through you know in throughout all the books and movies that we love but this yeah. was a really unique idea where where did where did this idea come from Oh, thank you. Um, so yes, yeah, so I mentioned earlier that I'd seen this documentary. Um, it was about a hospital art therapy class and like what it was doing for the patients. And this was honestly probably about 20 years ago. And it just stuck in the back of my head. It's like that would be such an interesting place um, because in hospitals, you know, you've got people who are there for a broken leg and you've got people like Lenny and Margot who are living out the final days of their lives. And if you get an art room, you're basically putting them all in together, you know, with this complete range of like emotion and, and sort of um, stakes and so on. So I knew that I wanted to do something in a hospital art room. And once I'd landed on the idea of them being 100 between them, it just kind of felt like this perfect thing that, you know how people write like Lenny was here on the wall and Lenny has this kind of um, above her hospital bed, there's a whiteboard where the nurses have written her name. And she knows that when she dies, they're going to erase her name and write the name of the next patient. So Lenny has this thing in the back of her mind that she needs to leave her mark on the world. You know, she needs to leave something that says Lenny was here. And so I think the paintings for me just felt like a perfect way for her to do something more permanent and for her and Margot to create something sort of physical out of these mental memories so that there'll be something left of them um when they both pass away uh father arthur for me is was one of the best characters um of the book um is is he based on anyone that you know or um was there anything that that informed this character Ah, oh, thank you. I love Father Arthur. And I, <laughs> I always try and steer the conversation towards him because I love him so much. So Father Arthur um, is very, very loosely based on a really good friend of mine. Um, and we met at university. And to give like a little bit of backstory, my parents are both atheists, but they sent me to Catholic school. So as it, one does, as you do. And like, it was a really scary, very serious Catholic school. And I'm a naturally very obedient person. So I was at school trying to be the very best Catholic I could be 
and then at home my mum and dad would just be kind of making jokes about it and sort of be like okay so what's all this what, what's, what are you doing today and so I came out of school with this hugely confused idea of, of who I am and what I believe in religion and everything which is obviously a huge question um so I started started at university and um I met my friend and he was also from a very religious upbringing but he was leaning more into the religion and I was leaning more into like maybe I'm agnostic maybe I'm an atheist I don't know and we just had these conversations. I would pop into his like we, you know, in a halls of residence, we had all these bedrooms along this corridor. I'd pop in for like a cup of tea and a biscuit and we'd be in there for hours talking about everything. You know, like his type of Christianity was different from mine. And I'd never heard of the rapture and he didn't believe in dinosaurs. And we just it sounds horrendous when you describe <laughs> it, but it was the most fun. And we're still really good friends to this day. He has a signed copy of Lady Margo. And what I learned from that is that you can you can absolutely adore someone and have completely different worldviews. And so Arthur came out of this idea that you can fully love someone who's completely religious, even though you're not religious, and they can tolerate and understand and love you, even though you don't believe what they believe. And so lots of Arthur and Lenny's kind of is there a God or these theological debates really were gently inspired by my own conversations with my um, lovely friend. And then Arthur just grew out of there. You know, as I said, I went to Catholic school. I would love to say that Arthur is based on some incredible priest. And I'm sure there are some out there, but he's not based on any priest. They were all scary when I was at school. Um, and I just, yeah, I just loved him so much. And I was worried that people would you know, be like, oh, I don't, this doesn't sound true for a priest to be this nice or what have you. <laughs> but, um, it's been lovely seeing the response. And I just think him and Lenny have so much fun debating the existence of everything between them. So, yeah, lots of fun for those two. Well, and, and it's kind of a lost art. And I, I'm so glad that you you brought that out in this character, um, because and I think the Internet has made it difficult for us to to have relationships with people that we you know have some fundamental disagreements with um you know it used to be that we would sit down with our next door neighbor and have you know tea and 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 disagree with them but still enjoy their company mm -hmm. and now we just want to shout at each other on the internet it's it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and like you know you just don't want to engage you don't want to get involved and there's you know trolls and it all gets very scary and serious and I think the internet sometimes makes it harder to have those conversations because you don't have tone of voice you don't have gesture you don't have those things that cue you into someone's kind of tone and, and whether they're meaning something as a joke or not um, and so I think for me like it by no means makes me super special that I'm friends with someone who's religious while I'm not but it just the way I like to think of it is we became friends by accident almost in spite of everything going on around us we became friends and so that was the thing that I took into writing Arthur and Lenny like it doesn't make sense for a 60 year old priest to make friends with a 17 year old girl like that sounds like a disaster but they they can't help but become friends they almost have no choice they just completely make each other laugh and get each other and push each other's buttons and so yeah I think it was it was one of my favorite things to write the 100 years of Lenny and Margot is available everywhere now when you're hearing this uh there's going to be links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover um I can't wait for the audiobook uh Marianne uh, you know we're actually recording this a couple of weeks before the book comes out and uh the audiobook won't be released uh, I'm I'm presuming until you know right at the end uh, as as most audiobooks do but have you have you heard any of the production yet 
I haven't yet, but I absolutely cannot wait. Um, the British edition, they've used two actresses, so one actress for Lenny and one for Margot, um, and that's been incredible. So um, it just feels like such a such a kind of unexpected thing, you know? Like I always dreamed about getting published, but I never imagined there'd be an audiobook, which sounds ridiculous when you think about it, because there's audiobooks of so many books now. But um, I think there's something really special about hearing someone else read your yeah. words back to you, and it just kind of gives me the tingles, like thinking that I'm going to get that experience <laughs> again. And I just, yeah, I cannot wait to hear what they do with the audiobook. Me too. I've, I've read the, you know, the art copy that I've got from your publisher, but I, I'm excited to hear the the audiobook and to experience this book again. Um, the 100 Years of Lenny and Margot, a must-have. You must grab this book. Use the links in the show notes uh, and, uh, and and go grab your copy today. Marianne, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Instagram. I'm at It's Marianne Cronin. Uh, you'll get pictures of me with proofs, with copies, lots of pictures of my cat who I recently adopted. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm at It's M Cronin because we couldn't fit my whole name in. Um, and <laughs> I absolutely love talking to readers. So, you know, please do get in touch with me if you've got any questions or you want any more information. Excellent. We'll link all that up as well. Uh, Marianne, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.